for The Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y-Review.com. This is Paul Daly, here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And tonight we're here to talk about the entire first season of a show that just came on Netflix. This one is called You. Had you heard about You before I said, hey, you want to watch You? Only in passing. So on Twitter, we have lots of friends who have enjoyed You starting off on Lifetime and some who have picked up up on Netflix. And when I kicked it out there and was like, is anyone watching You? I immediately got a really heavy response and people being like, this is awesome. I'm totally into it. I had a couple stragglers saying like, you know, I had a really hard time with it and I actually needed to stop at various points. But for the most part, I got really positive feedback from people saying this is really a good show to, you know, enjoy. Someone at work told me about it. You know, I mostly seek out genre type shows, but mostly of the speculative fiction. I would say in the pew pew right. variety. So uh, <laughs> thrillers are kind of like my change up. You know what I mean? See, and thrillers are like my bag in terms of like... It's like a guilty pleasure. It's something that I know is going to scare me a little bit. And so that's a little bit exciting. But I love that so much more than the, you know, jump scare nonsense. I really love the untangling puzzle as you're going along and trying to figure out somebody. So I'm going to say like a mystery thriller, which this definitely I would put that under because you really the whole time we're trying to figure out like what the hell happened to Candace? What's going on? What the frig is up with Moody? You know, just there's so many different parts to this that were truly a mystery as much as they were a thriller. One minor mystery that was just solved in our prep for this podcast was Why the heck are there commercial breaks? Well, it was made on Lifetime first. Well, and you know what else? Um, This would have made sense to have a whole heck of a lot of swearing in it, and there was none. And the sexual content went right up to what a network would show. And I mean, there's a lot of that stuff that you had to really suspend some disbelief in terms of like, really, nobody's going to have curtains. Really, no one else is on that cruise with you. Like, okay. But it allowed for it to almost be like a little bit less gross, I guess, if you want to say that. Like, so if they were on a boat full of people, that might have been like very over the top. But like, hey, they're all alone. No one was even up there. You know, no harm, no foul kind of thing. It also helps me understand why perhaps the plot ran as long as it did. Meaning 10 episodes is sort of like a, a minimum like network order. You know what I mean? For, yeah. For okay. a show. Whereas something truly born for Netflix could be any number. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would have said they could have done this one in like six to eight, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the premise of this show? Well, it's hard to break down simply. I mean, my original premise that I put up for us to discuss was a guy tries to make a girl fall in love with him and then he ends up killing her, which, yes, these are the things that happen. <laughs> However, but that doesn't really go far enough to explain why the hell you should watch this show. That is the description of any romantic comedy, but this is not a romantic comedy. I guess I was so interested in the other supporting storylines and how they made me just as nervous or just as um, intrigued about the way that social media is used. And then bigger than that, 
the way that people manipulate one another in their daily lives. And it really doesn't only have to do with Joe and Beck, the relationship between the captain and Beck. And I even looked at, you know, like the stepsister and Beck and and just the way that people responded to one another, the way they manipulated one another. I really found that to be as fascinating and scary as the blatant, you know, obviously killing someone is scary. But it's it's very scary the idea of people like going through your Facebook page and and deciding to hurt you in different ways by exposing a different picture of you or doing something like it's all so uh, passive aggressive and yet so effective and kind of a um, hallmark of the people that decided to develop this show I would say mm, tell me more all right so we've got two pretty big time producers well I mean one is a gigantic mega producer and then the other one has made some popular things too we have greg berlanti who is right now hollywood's biggest deal in tv just because he of the volume of things that he's producing he produces all of the television shows for dc comics this means arrow flash supergirl black lightning legends of tomorrow and the ones on the dc channel themselves like the teen titans and the upcoming doom patrol so talk to me for a moment how you could compare this show, which is decidedly not a superhero show, yeah, and those that Greg's been involved with, because it does seem like there's something of an of a of a serious overlap there. But how would you best describe it? If you subtract the parts where there's superheroes having to jump into a scene and kick people's asses and and that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they always come back to you. This is what's something you've noticed whenever you watch them over my shoulder. You're like. They sure talk a lot because they always come back to home base and they've always got some sort of beef they need to discuss. They're like, hey, uh, can I talk to you for a second? And then they go and then they discuss what's bothering them and that kind of stuff. And, oh, what's bothering you? Oh, it's, you know, Green Arrow. And and, and then it's, you know, that sort of <laughs> stuff. He, he has these shows that create complicated, beyond what normal people would tolerate, sort of relationships between people in kind of high stakes situations. I think that there's something that makes a superhero show amazing when they can express revenge in ways that the average bear can understand and relate to and can also understand the idea of those relationships going back really far because because frequently the villain will have been like childhood friends with the hero or, you know, something like that, which totally plays into you. And then also frequently you have to really have some little soft spot for some of the villains, some of the true anti-hero types in a superhero show. You can't you can't really want Lex Luthor to die. I don't ever want him to. I I want always there to be like a little bit of, yeah, I kind of get where he's coming from. You kind of were a jerk or like whatever. Like uh, funny enough, I think the way that when they flipped around Karate Kid on us Mm -hmm. and showed it like from Johnny's point of view and you're like, oh, yeah, right. Look, Daniel. Was I was gonna say Danielson? Danielson was a total bully. You know, like I think that that the shows that are most 
effective and and really are most fun to watch is when you actually are a little rooting for both sides, both the one that's like creating the mayhem and the one who's trying to clean up the mess. Those are the best villains. A lot of times he'll he'll have villains that are like you know hand wringing, uh, mustache twirling, right. nyah, nyah, nyah. but those but the best ones are the I killed your mom because I had to. And when I think about other shows like that, like I think about Veronica Mars, say, and like you know there were sort of the villains, if you will, on those that when you look at them, you're like, you know what? But really, they had their own reasons too. It's sort of like villains have moms too, right? right. And it's like they had their own crap going on. So I, I mean, I can really see how it works to have somebody who would be involved with superhero shows as much as Greg is and then weave them into something that is like kind of just ordinary life. You know, you would think of a rom-com kind of situation to be just like girl meets guy, da da da. And it's like so boring, right? It's right. so basic. There's no no one's flying off of a building mm, unless you're Elijah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, like there's none of that kind of grand kind of part to it, I guess you want to say. It's like so much more interesting that it's like ordinary people doing ordinary things and the outcomes are so extraordinary. Well, he started on Dawson's Creek and moved to shows like Everwood and brothers and sisters so these he he has some history there and sure does that's a really good resume crap and then you combine that with i don't know if you say it sarah or sarah gamble but her big two shows that she came from are the magicians which is we've okay. got a lot of people who love that on twitter too but her biggie her huge one is going to come from supernatural which has been running lucky for you. forever right? as an executive producer, supervising producer, regular old producer. So she has a lot of years in on that show, too. Some uh, genre type mixture in there, but definitely the complicated relationships between people are also hallmarks of her shows, too. I'm less familiar with them, but I, I get the idea that that's the lasting idea is that there's brothers, but it's complicated, you know, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. But you know what? I mean, and that's the reality of life. You know, things things are very rarely just cut and dry. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, you usually have these just layers of like things that could set you off or that you keep stifled. What did you think about the fact that they had the setting in New York City? I have mixed feelings on it because I just came back from New York City and I actually spent a little time there as an adult and like wandering around there as an adult doing adult things. And one thing I can say is that there is no point in time when New York City is as quiet and as desolate as various times that it was in their show. Meaning, like being on the first floor with no curtains, with your bed up against the window. I am sorry, but like just sitting at a regular restaurant and like watching people go by, people are f like constantly flowing everywhere, you know, at all times, day and night. And that kind of stuff. I mean, I know it's an easy thing to pick on, but even like the cruise, come on, there is no way you would be alone on that. And frequently there's just so many times, like even the bookstore being as desolate as it, as it was the majority of of the time 
it just kind of seemed like this is New York City. There's a lot of people and a lot of energy that is going on. As important as the plot point of nobody seeing Joe doing a lot of these things are. I mean, even the fact that there was like only himself, Beck, and like the homeless man down in the subway. What? I mean. I think they needed access to things like you just mentioned. Like they needed access to things like subways and the ability to walk everywhere or at least be close to where people people where you wouldn't need to, to have a bunch of stuff in cars going on and things. Plus, I think they wanted a place where budding socialites like her friends mm -hmm. would legitimately exist. You wouldn't go to Pittsburgh or something and have this. Yeah. Okay. Maybe someone from Pittsburgh would call me up and say, actually, I'm a socialite in Pittsburgh. <laughs> right. But I mean, if we're talking about TV stereotype stuff, you go with those LA or New York. That's it. But here's, you know? so here's my only other like comment on that. I think that sometimes the concept of like being alone in a crowd would have been more appropriate to something like being in New York City where there's like all these people around you, but like nobody paid attention to what you were doing. That is almost like more believable than no one around you filming it with no one there like yeah. i dropped my coat during walking around and you know it, it was just ignored is the point no one picked it up nobody stole it but nobody did anything and it was just it's like funny because it's like nobody even noticed that my red coat was laying on the ground in the middle of the sidewalk nobody cared and i didn't notice it right away that i had dropped it it's more unnerving i guess the idea that how many people walked by it and didn't give a shit you know what i'm saying of like of joe and his behavior or Peach or Beck or anybody else. It's like the things that they did, like people were around all the time in reality and nobody cared. So nobody you noticed. it's like you needed a New York to kind of legitimize Joe's whole game, basically. Kind of, yeah. He needed to be able to just blend into the background. And yeah. instead he was literally one man standing on a street a lot of times. Which is like, how are you blending in the background of one man standing outside? But if there was a bunch of people walking by all the time and you just, it starts to become like background white noise of all these other people. Yeah, I think he could have been easily standing there and never would have seen him. We visited a friend of Caroline's when we were in college and we got to see where a real New York college student got to live if they <laughs> decided to do that. She got a futon in the corner of a room in which she shared with five other people. Yeah. This first... And like all of her stuff had to be under the bed and that was it. Like she had basically the size of her bed space. So this idea of a first floor... Beautiful um, freaking Wood floors, place. multiple rooms, mm -hmm. uh, all that stuff. Fun for a setting, cool for a setting, but not super believable. No. So, I mean, I guess we just overlook it. I mean, it's yeah. beautiful. And again, does she have to have gigantic first floor windows in order for Joe to be able to play out this scenario? Yeah, she, he does. Because, I mean, otherwise there's no way to see much of what he's seeing. So you want to get into some characters, Mr. Day? Yeah, let's talk about the characters. Okay, let's. So I said the premise is about a guy doing everything he can to make a girl fall in love with him. The guy in this case is Joe Goldberg. Tire show, with the exception of one half of one episode, maybe not even a half, maybe more like a third, a third of an episode is told through his point of view, not only just his point of view, but actually we get some of his, well, all of his inner dialogue. You know, actually, I don't remember. Was the, did, did they put the inner dialogue in the movie version of Gone Girl or was it pretty much just the book where you got to hear everything in there in the various characters' heads? Well, spoiler alert, but I think at the end when she's like driving in the car... Yeah. And you start and they start to show her side of things. I think then we got her inner dialogue at that point for that portion. This show reminded me a lot 
of, of, oh, of yeah. the Gone Girl style narrative where you're getting like bits and pieces and you're starting to like certain characters, but then you're like, then they show you something where you, where, you know, classically you're not supposed to like characters that do these, <laughs> these things, but then there's, they show you so much more. It's like, but, but they do these other things that make them redeeming and, and it's, and it's good. Right? Do you think it was effective that they had Joe have that little pause and have Beck have that little one third? Like, was that a good idea or did that actually kind of create this like why don't we see more from her side or why doesn't anyone else ever have a voiceover or anything did it did it wedge the door open a little bit like to kind of make it look a little like mm, is that a flaw or is that a good thing like would you have preferred it to just be joe since i didn't do it again it felt like a flaw i would have actually welcomed getting bex point of view because by the end of this show we looked at each other and we're like wait a second do we even like beck I mean, mm. is she a, is she a quality person that if we knew her, we'd want to keep knowing her, like keep in touch with her? If we would have gotten to her head, there's a chance we'd have a more complete answer. Just by her actions, she'd be kind of complicated to know <laughs> in, in real life. To answer your original question, I think either give her more time or give her no time. I think because no one else had any time, I vote nobody should have gotten any time. You know, it should have just been Joe, straight, straight finish. Or... You do Joe, and when it was focused on Peach, you give Peach some time. When it was, you know, Beck, you give Beck some time. Like, that kind of thing where you kind of, even Paco, like, wouldn't it have been a little interesting to hear his little thoughts in his little head? You know, down the line, I think there could have been a way to weave that in. It's a different story if you do that. It's a totally different story, and I don't know that it would have been better. But the second you introduced Beck's point of view through her actual words, then it was like, there was that moment of, like, waiting. Like, when are, when are we going to hear more from her? Or like, wait, wait, wait. And when you look back over 10 episodes, you're like, what the frig? She only got like 20 lines or something, you know, like that's crap. Joe's inner dialogue, why it was significant was obviously that, you know, we all think things that, and then we do things that are not always the same. It's just that his were so wildly apart. What you'd expect from someone thinking those thoughts and then he'd help Paco get dinner or whatever with no other motive other than to feed a kid who was hungry. I looked it up and I've seen that, that most people agree that he is at least a sociopath, probably obsessive compulsive. And one person thought, well, maybe Dr. Nikki was proposing that he had split personality, but I am not so sure about that. I do a little bit go with that split personality though part of it the parts to him that were lovable and kind and truly in love with Beck I thought they were genuine in a lot of ways and I think that's what makes him such a confusing character because none of us want to love a guy who would slit anyone's throat or manipulate people through the phones and all that kind of stuff but it's because there seemed to be such a dividing line between the guy who does those things and the guy who like makes you breakfast. And, you know, it, right. it, because you could divide it out, that l lends itself to like the he really did seem to have a pretty good split. And, and even though we got into uh, Joe's background through like like little drips and drabs, you know, let's go back to like his histories, everything, you know, his father was abusive, his mother did not defend him. And that is where we find his love of Paco, really, right? Is like this, this, he sees himself hmm. in Paco's situation right. is yeah. that, you know, the, the man is so abusive and the, and the woman just stands by. And then the idea that he essentially ends up in the system, that's how he lands with Mooney, how he ends up being sort of like his protege, if you will. The abusiveness that Mooney treats him with, the hardcore you have to know what life is really about 
And like, if you're going to know about this bookstore, then you have to just be like stuck in this cage and learn everything about these books. Do you feel like that that level of abusiveness, we discussed this nature nurture, was that as bad or just as bad or more awful than what he endured with his own parents? I think a pretty decent chance that he would have just been normal fucked up had he just (laughs) not run into Mr. Mooney instead of the way he is now, meaning like using the the book room to lock people up as a way to kind of get them to see it your way because that's what worked for him. Yeah. I mean, in theory, he wouldn't have the book room, right? <laughs> right at all. Right. <laughs> right. Cross paths with Mooney. He would just, you know, be be skeptical of, of relationships and all the other things that go along with. So uh, I thought that was interesting how they showed various kinds of abuse. I mean, they explained things like obviously Ron hitting. They explained Joe's father had put out cigarettes on his arm like that kind of stuff but then to see the psychological emotional warfare against not just joe but also paco the idea of like you can't have books you can't have an escape that was like one way was very figurative and that you can't have the escape of the books and then you have joe being like physically locked in a cage with books but they're both like you can't escape. So what do you think about Joe now and the nature nurture? So do you think that oh, he th- could have been a normal person? Was he always crazy? Or was it this series of other people, sort of what they did to him and what he had to endure to get through it? I wish I knew what what grew sociopaths better, but I, I got to go with nurture uh, on this, like being locked in the room treatment. If you come from the abuse and then you get that, the physical abuse, and then you get this emotional abuse. And being taught that that's a perfectly good way to, since you're not hitting anyone, you know, uh, it's a perfectly good way to deal with other people. At the the very last episode, when they're selling Beck's book and you're hearing it in his, in his mind and you're realizing like he's kind of resetting, he's kind of like washing Beck out of his system mentally and he's sort of being like, well, and then, and then he notices another woman come into the store and it's like the same exact cycle starting over again this is just a like i said like a cycle for him it's just like a a thing that he's just going to keep running through he was so lovingly laying out beck's book and the way that he actually felt like it was because of him that she ultimately got her dream come true becoming a published author um and had it not been for him and all that he did beck never would have realized that dream Now, here's the weird thing about it. He's kind of right, you know, in that everyone who said that had had an opportunity to to critique Beck's writing along the entire storyline had said that she was a bad writer. No one had said she was extraordinary. Everyone was like, that was pretty lame. You know, from the agent to her fellow, you know, peers, all that stuff. Everybody was like, like they were not impressed. It took a lot for her to crank out something that that other people agreed was good. And they weren't, but for the most part, they weren't impressed with her. Like the chances of her writing a real book and having it published as opposed to writing a couple of pages or whatever, it seemed like it wasn't probably going to happen, you know? Especially as a poet. Right. And so, and he intimated that he basically edited and took things from her other pieces and pieced it together and created something out of her work Again, like, would she have ever accomplished that without him? I don't know. That was a factor throughout the whole thing was 
generally a sense of correctness to like the bullet points of his actions leading to a result someone somewhere wanted but it skips over the all the middle part where you had to kill somebody or something in order to get that result yeah but that's true about the book too um i feel like a lot of the things about the killing people to me it was less about the actual death of a person and more speaking to the relentless resilience of people. Okay, so let's take Peach. The amount of times that she had something that happened to her that should have really like shaken the storyline in a way and shaken her as a character. And yet she would just like bounce the frick back. I get it that that they showed that she probably really didn't take all the pills she did. And for God's sake, she had Narcan on hand. Like for God's sake, this woman was totally prepared for these, these situations. However, being smacked in the head with a rock and being like, bam, right back. Let's go to movies. Let's go do all this stuff. Like seemingly like the next day, the the resilience, the relentlessness, the roach like quality of people where you can smash them and smash them and smash them and they fucking come back, you know, and that's like the part that makes you feel like about why you feel like he got to where he got to. Like there's no cutting people out of your life where they don't come creeping back in, Candace. <laughs> <laughs> right. Really. I mean, since we all we only got Joe's point of view on this and, and his his point of view was always like he was sort of like it, it, it was like he was like a snowplow driver, basically. And, he, and everyone was just snow. <laughs> right. Because it was like he wanted to clear them all out of his way so that it was like a clear line between him and Beck. So if you were if you were something that complicated that route, you got pushed to the side, maybe permanently. He thought about it, I thought, in very simplistic terms, you know, like, what's the what's the easiest way to, to get us together? Going back to Joe, I was constantly charmed by the, by the fact that he was so willing and able and easy with sneaking in and out of shit, oh, looking yeah. at other people's shit, getting into their computers, all that stuff. I know that those are bad behaviors, but the fact that he just did it without it wasn't even like a second thought it was just like you don't even lock your door you know that's that's not safe you'll never know who's going to come in here <laughs> you know, like well, that and kind I, of stuff i agree with you and i think that that's the part where people again have that hard time of like that love hate relationship with him where he he does the things that you would actually want to do like you would want to sneak in and find out like what that person really did write about you or whatever or if you could have a copy of someone's phone and you could read what that text message was about and them not even know about it you know there's parts to it that are real and none of us want to admit to that nobody wants to say oh i'm so nosy or whatever that i would care but the reality is we know it is we we know that half the times you'll meet somebody and they'll say well, oh yeah i you know i looked you up on facebook i saw you on someone else's page or blah, blah. you know you'll you'll hear something and you're like how did you know that about me and they'll oh right, well yeah. you know i i saw your mom's friend was my hairdresser's you know and, and you're like what what you know there's those kind of things that happen all the time and you're right in the way that they wove technology into that in such a realistic way the shit like find my computer and then realizing that he just like slipped it outside her house on the like little back 
bench. Mm-hmm. So friggin' smart. And so, man, there. if you guys listen to any of our other podcasts, one of the things that I will rant about is I need my characters to be clever. I need them to be smart enough and understand how the world works enough that they can manipulate things realistically. And crap like understanding technology, understanding people's behavior, Understanding even down to the way someone dresses, which they completely hit upon many times between Benji's $80,000 watch to the fact that the girl's wearing a hoodie with her head covered, but yet she has bare legs up to, you know, her mid thigh. Like you can tell so much about people by looking at them. I felt like that was so clever. You know, that was the kind of stuff. Those are the characters that I want to know more about that I crave. Did you want to know more about Beck? You know what? I thought that she had a real lack of being clever that made me feel like I don't know if it was that she wasn't as fleshed out as Joe for us, because, again, we didn't have her inner dialogue. She was so much more all over the place between the captain and that entire storyline, the way that she couldn't seem to handle her schoolwork writing life, how sort of not uh, in control that she was in much of that. The whole relationship with Peach and how she never could see anything, you know, until really the very last moments there. Right. You know, to me, she was just so all over the place. And, And her willingness to do things that were so questionable and yet we're supposed to think like she's like the victim and, and yet you see Joe doing these things and you're like, well, things like taking the drugs with Raj or whatever. You sure. know, like there was like parts to that that it was like as soon as you saw her doing things like that, you were like, well, hang on a minute. You know, like who is the like deviant person? Well, earlier she you know? had said something like, oh, I don't take things. Yeah. She said that to the agent in the car. I mean, don't get me wrong. Everybody can like have their like try things out, whatever experimentation. But it was the like how adamant she was that she wasn't into girls and yet she would like make out with peach a little or whatever you know it was like all these like sort of game playing that there's something about joe that even though he is i mean damn scary right but he is like i do what i say i'm gonna do you know (laughs) what i mean and she's so like burp 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 like just all over the place do you have a sense of beck and like did you like her as a character i mean i could see why upon his first meeting in the bookstore just in that little moment there that she would have done enough said enough and looked correct enough for him to have been attracted to her in that moment but then once you see all this other stuff since you are joe for this exercise and you're going and spying on her and seeing all these other things like she believes she's in a relationship with Benji who does not believe that he is in a relationship with her and does things like the uh consecutive nights of boning Benji out of her system or whatever as a as a suitor you might be like I'm not so interested really now. I this suitor would would have been like that. So <laughs> But I think that 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 little part is like because we are not of the age of Tinder and the age of like um it's okay to actually like call up a Tinder date, do this for sex and then move on. I think that that the casualness of 
sex and of relationships with various people is, is I think, harder for, I, I don't want to say older people. That makes me feel sad. Well, that's true. But we're just not of the Tinder generation. So then in that case, actually is very realistic and understandable. I do have a uh, challenge uh, for my own self, putting myself in the frame of mind of someone of her age. So that is a challenge for me. So if I do sound like an old timer talking about these kids today, just fucking all the time, it's, it's, it is something I can acknowledge pretty, pretty easily. But at the same time, I, I got to think there's got to be other young Pauls out there that'd be like, ah, too complicated. I'll keep looking. The thing that was curious to me was why Joe liked her. Like every time I saw what she seemed weak willed to me. Yeah, well, that's what I meant about the banging around, just like boop, 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 boop all over the place. Because you're right, like she didn't seem to have a sense of self. And it's sort of like any way the wind blew, that's the way she was going to go because she had to bend to different people's wills. And I get that very much. I do understand that. But it was weird because I I really didn't understand Joe's attraction to her. I She was pretty. Yeah. But then... Is it just the fact that he knew he could manipulate her? Is that what made her attractive? Because she didn't really challenge him in terms of like, you know, literature or did they have anything in common that they liked to do together? Or was there something about her that was, do you see what I mean? Like, right. what was like, the love affair with Beck? I think it was the manipulating part because it was all the stuff that he looked forward to and, and enjoyed and, and all that kind of stuff was the taking care of her aspects of it, right? And, okay, yeah. And he wanted to help facilitate her ability to write and just let her be her best self, her, her most amazing self. Most amazing self. self. And, Do you know, that's the other reason why I think it reminds me of uh, Gone Girl, because it was Amazing Amy. Amazing Amy. Yeah, right. you had to be Amazing Amy. And so, yeah, that, that definitely rang. As soon as she said, are you being your most amazing self? I was like, oh, wow. I've heard that before. So all in all, Beck, thumbs up, thumbs down. What was what was that? Was she not fleshed out enough as a character by the author and by the show? Or was she, this is completely who she was. And she just was that young and naive and sort of still figuring things out. And so she kind of tended to kind of bounce around. For as young as she was, I mean, I don't know if the naive is the right word exactly. I mean, she, I don't know, I wouldn't describe her necessarily as... Naive, maybe trusting. Is that the same as naive? It naive kind of seems like a lack of experience, but is that but does experience make you less trusting? I don't know. That's a good question. I would say by the end of the show, her, her culmination of experiences made her a hell of a lot less trusting. Yeah. Well, let's move on to an to another character that played a big role. And let's talk about so let's talk about Peach. Peach. She was a beautiful actress. I don't recognize her, but yeah, she uh, was pretty dark haired. She was the wealthiest amongst her little group. She was a there. Salinger. She was a Salinger, which I guess for just lay people, we're just supposed to assume that there's like big catcher in the rye money there. But she was also a very dominating uh, personality that said tons of passive aggressive bitchy things to her friends. I believe she uploaded that video about Annika and and um, oh hell yes, she, does, she retaliates um, against against her friends. She waits until Beck says, "Hey, I've got a I've got an interview with a 
with an agent to say, oh, but I was about to set you up with an agent and, you know, like that kind of that kind of thing. I found personally nothing about Peach that I liked or wanted to see a lot more of or would have thought would have made a fantastic friend for myself. The complication there of her maybe having the girl on girl hots for Beck was a nice twist to make her more interesting since she has a touch of the obsession that we're looking, we're supposed to be looking at with Joe and being like, well, you're obviously mentally a little ill with this obsession, but we're seeing that, that, um, Peach probably has a touch of that herself, right? Yeah. So so you mentioned the thing about you're like, I don't know if there's J.D. Salinger money. Well, OK, so when he passed, he had it was a 20 million dollar net worth. And and he apparently was a pretty bizarre guy. Like he was, uh, according to an article that I read, he th- it described him as neurotic, viciously obsessive. Well, he had a nervous breakdown. He only gave one interview ever, and it was to a high school student. He probably drank his own pee. He would speak in tongues and like occasionally be like sipping on his own urine. I do that. Um, I mean, he's a pretty weird dude. So when you look at like the Salinger family and like think like especially the obsessiveness and the strange ways of things, I don't know. I think they did kind of a cool job in making that be Peach, you know, a cool nod. And he apparently I mean, he was like a New York wealthy guy. Okay. Like that's where the family like, it actually matches up like pretty well. OK, I love that. So Peach herself, man, the only thing that I had like kind of a problem with was the idea that somehow the whole reason why she didn't actually come out with Beck and say how she felt was because of what her family would say. Somehow the way that her life was so wild and party crazy and all this kind of stuff, I I felt like they would have had to give us something more tangible that her family was actually pushing her to marry someone specific having to do with their money or their status or something like they never really gave us any reason to believe that her family was so strict with her. Right. Like, where did you see any point in time when the girl held back right. on anything? It's that's an excellent, excellent point. Nothing. Ah, I didn't see anything that would lead me to believe that there was some sort of some sort of uh, longstanding conservative values or something in her house or upbringing that would make that would necessitate this discriminate against same-sex relationships now they tried to say it they tried to verbally tell it to us you know like with beck and they tried to say like beck tried to say i know your parents wouldn't approve but i just think that if you're going to make that be her singular motivation for not acting on this love with beck and her obsessiveness with beck had to always be secretive in this like really like perverse way you had to give me something to understand where Peach was coming from. Like, what was going to happen to her? Was she going to be cut off from all of her money? Was she going to be, like, beaten to death? Like, what was going to happen to Peach? It would be interesting to go back to the original novel titled You, written by Caroline Kepnis. Check out Peach. I, I mean, I haven't read it yet. 
So I don't even know if Peach is completely uh, written into the show or if she's in the book. If you guys are listening and you have read the book, please like, you know, feel free to shout out to us and let us know, like, was there anything to Peach that gave us a little bit more insight as to like, you know, what, how, how stringent was her family? What exactly would they do to her? You know, did they give us any examples anywhere at any time in which they disapproved of Peach's life? Because they, she seemed pretty successful as an interior designer under herself. She didn't seem like she was solely reliant on her family, although obviously she enjoyed, you know, the the secondary estate and all that kind of stuff. You know, there certainly was more going on. Given that we're exposed to the idea that she is possibly as obsessed with Beck as Joe. I think yes. I think from a novel writing perspective, you might you might represent her better than she is in the in the TV show with more time basically and and make her and Joe sort of adversaries whereas Well, they definitely were adversaries yeah, in the but, show. Yeah, but there's so much Joe time that there's no Peach doesn't have a chance. Right. Well, you we know? don't get She's to She's a get, minor villain. We don't get to know Peach's reasoning, you right. know, because again, we're not in Peach's head. And so you're right that that it could be a love triangle much more. Yeah. Um, but it's not because we really don't get to know what's going on with And that Peach. seems like the sort of development you'd get in a novel that would go much further down that road so that it seemed less like one more obstacle to get out of my way and and more like could Beck could go either way, you know, that sort of thing. What do you think about the death of Peach and the whole portion with the fact that, again, I think this is a J.D. Salinger callback with the the pee in the jar that was left. Ah, nice. I think that was a total little Easter egg. Peach was in control of that whole situation, right? She had the gun. She saw the, the hole in his thigh. What'd she get so close to him for? Oh, and that was so jump scare moment, right? Where you get so close and then they grab you. Yeah. Total jump scare. Dude, I mean, Peach. Peach seems like the kind of girl who you're right. She never would have gotten so close up without blowing his brains out. Like, I feel like she would have pointed the gun directly at his face and pulled the trigger before right. she got Right, you know what guns closer. are good at? Killing people from far away. <laughs> right. <laughs> you brought a gun to, and you treated it like a knife fight. Right. What are you doing? You didn't have to right. get so close. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. So then ultimately, Peach deserved it because she played it out stupid at the end. Hmm, deserves a funny, funny word. Well, but played her hand wrong. There you go. Yeah, like like uh, like when you take that extra spin when you're already leading by by two thousand dollars on Wheel of Fortune, you got to get that extra spin, right? And what happens? Bankrupt. Right. You know what your dad says? Good for you. <laughs> Whenever that happens, he says, "Good for you." <laughs> you deserved it. You got too greedy, huh? Yeah, that's what he says. I agree. I agree. Okay, so let's talk about the other friends. Um, so I would like to say that the casting for the the other friends, we had Blythe, we had Annika, we had Lynn. There was definitely a love of a certain look of girl that was not overly feminine. Mixed, like you'd find probably with a more realistic grouping of people in terms of like, they're not all, uh, what what are they, glamazons or... or um... Well, that's the funny thing, though. I think that when you are so tall and you have that sort of almost like more 
androgynous look about you, I feel like that that actually does lend itself to glamazon as opposed to like delicate features or very there's that there's that weird um in the same way that oftentimes men like Benji are like a little too quaffed and a little too soft and like uses lotion like a little too like the like the the line between men and women get real fuzzy you know the, the women are a little bit a little bit more masculine than you might exactly expect it was interesting that you called it that Blythe as uh the actress that played Blythe was not likely to have been always a woman. I thought it was an interesting part of it that it that it didn't play into the show. No. At all. And that I thought that it actually again like sort of gave her gave her a little bit of a different look that was like a little bit like interesting slash exotic is probably too strong of a word, but it definitely gives you that model look where you're like you probably photograph very well, but you also have a very interesting and unusual look about you. Well, and given that the actress is trans, um, if I understood her her little bit of backstory, uh, she was a trans person, but playing a a person that had been the same gender their whole life. Because I think she had mentioned something about being a young model or something in part of her travels when she was growing up yeah she said that she was in japan and so then her hair was very unusual yeah so all that i mean she didn't strictly say i guess as a little girl but i kind of took it that way you know what i mean yeah no i think that the that who she was in real life had nothing to do with the character she was playing i agree with that that's what i mean so what do you what do you feel about that like is that refreshing that it's like who cares that she was how whatever her life was she was playing a character who had always been a female and it played no it had no bearing if they're representing new york they they've got to probably do a good job representing all types of people and i don't just mean <laughs> i don't mean like <laughs> that's a funny way to put it right all types of people just people with, people all, with all different, different like backgrounds, journeys makeups, and, uh, yeah yeah, yeah i histories. think that that's fair I think that's fair. I Did you like Blythe as a character? After she kind of softened up, she seemed more like an eccentric than just an uppity bitch at the beginning where she Whoa. was just like, I'm pretty smart and I've done a lot of things and <laughs> you're kind of beneath my uh, contempt even. So we'll see what you can offer before I even think about you. I liked her with Ethan. I feel like Ethan is a thing that softened her edges. Ethan is probably my favorite character in the whole thing because oh, he was tell just me more. He was, what do you love well, about he was Ethan? just sort of like comic relief in a way that was okay to laugh at, you know. Absolutely. Joe said and did funny things, especially when he thought one thing but did another that was like completely different. But but afterwards you're not you realize, you know, you're laughing at this animal, right, that's doing these these monstrous things. Whereas Ethan was just saying and doing funny um charming little things you know what he I mean? was definitely charming i agree with you very very much and i liked the two of them together like i thought that they were a funny match and and very like of anybody like i was pulling for them <laughs> right for everything to work out fine between them well it's funny how you might have someone who is an active writer and then a bookstore clerk it seems like well you know one is sort of like an academic and one is sort of for lack of a better term, a blue collar kind of service, customer service job meeting up so well. But I think probably bookstores are filled up with the people that appreciate writing and books and publishing like the most, especially in oh, the yeah. mom and pop bookstore kind, oh, of, yeah. kind of level. Absolutely. And the way that he would just like read all different books all the time, 
you know, for like his own um, curiosity of anything. Like he was just like reading cookbooks or like doing whatever. Like I love that. I think that he is actually somebody who has a really vibrant mind that would be exciting to talk to. It's like a boots on the ground appreciation for for literature that doesn't have that same MFA like right, like snootiness or pretentious whatever bullshittiness about it. You right? Know? Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So then where does Annika and Lynn fall into this? Lynn, Lynn I felt like, was like non-entity, Yeah, right? she wasn't really, she wasn't given much. I don't think so either. And so, what about Annika then? Annika, the body positive influencer, uh, <laughs> or social influencer, was that what they call yeah, it? Yeah, social, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've kind of recognized her personality a little bit, you know? Someone that hmm, has self-esteem type issues that 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 acts kind of loudly and proudly, but then when you cut them down, it like really hurts them, kind of thing, in a, in a way that someone who actually had I don't know better self-esteem would just sort of be like, well, this was said to me by a bitch, so I am not worried about a bitch's opinion of me, so whatever. But that's not the case. This is more like. You know, I'll. She just like how Joe points out that she just shakes her boobs and says something crass, and then that's like how her how she kind of deals with these criticisms and things like that. So I, I feel like I've met Annika before. Of her friends, I liked Annika the best. I don't know that I would. Annika wouldn't be my best friend in the world, but she's probably someone that I could get along with and not and but not treat like Peach treated her, treat her like an actual person. But I could probably get along with her in short stints. You know what I mean? I think so. Yeah, I certainly relate to Annika and 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 a lot of the things that she she encountered. And I definitely think I, I've never had a friend like Peach who like was so overt with their snottiness. I don't I don't think I could handle that at all. Like I, I don't know anybody like Peach who's that strong and that mean overtly, you know, the way that she would just be like, you know, when they were having girls night, she's like, this is so much better than classic girls night, you know, like when it was just the girls and, right. you know, like, I mean, that's not passive aggressive. That's, that's overt. I mean, she's saying it like this sucks with you here, you know, it's not even quiet. So I, I thought that, uh, that it was really the peach dynamic that really drove Annika's character, you know, like she would have been a completely different person if you didn't have a peach hanging around. Probably true. Is there always a peach? Is that the question? Is there always a peach? I don't think so. In large little quorums of, of, of women, you will get, I mean, passive aggressiveness in, in women is very tropey. <laughs> right. It's it's an easy is an easy thing for writers to be like, well, someone's going to be that way. There's always sure. a Regina George, right? There's always a Regina George. That's yeah. I mean, so that's a peach. That's not a controversial thing for me to have said. It's it's just a just a fact. All right. Let's talk about some of the other women that we had portrayed in the story. We had Karen and Claudia, Claudia dealing with Ron and Paco. What did you think about Karen's introduction and how that affected the Ron Claudia Paco story. I feel like when Karen was introduced was when the show started to run on the long side for me. Okay. Tell me more. Um, she felt like a detour, like, um, like we've got to get this show to last 10 episodes. You know, if we're going to invest all this money in making a show, it's got to fill this number of weeks on the schedule. So we've got to have this plot that extends so we need a Karen. Now you book readers may be like, nope, Karen was in there. Gotta have a Karen. Maybe there's there's five Karen's for all. So maybe they just rolled them all into one Karen. But for me, that's when it felt like 
okay, now we're starting to see the same kinds of things we've seen in other, just classic jealousy, classic like reunite the star-crossed lovers kind of stuff that isn't unique to this show. I watched this show for the unique stuff that it gave me in the first five episodes, you know? So the part that I liked about Karen that I thought that she did bring to the storyline was the idea that Joe did things along the way and hurt people because of Beck, right? Did things physically hurt them and also like just coming home and breaking up with Karen. That was so terrible, right? But few times, very, very few times, was there any fallout for those things? So for instance, killing Peach while the actual act of killing her was terrible. He didn't ever see Peach's family be sad about her or anything like that. Killing Benji, he didn't ever see the soda company fail and watch the doors close or something like that, right? But breaking up with Karen and having to see Paco say, Karen left and now Ron's back and my life's a living hell because of a choice you made to be with Beck. Mm, Yeah. That was what Karen brought to the story for me. The idea that there are actual repercussions for what you did, Joe, to people who you actually love and care about. So you're right. Once um, once we had th- seen things like Benji get killed or, or whatever, it was like those elements almost completely just fell out of Joe's story. You know what I mean? So it, like I said, how he was the snowplow going from point A to point B. You know, once once he'd pushed off the snow, that was Benji. He was like, that's old snow. <laughs> We're not, right. That- There's no, there was no repercussions in terms of like who did that hurt outside of. Yeah, it never came up whether nope. his parents gave a shit or, or anything. It wasn't. Uh, I mean, truly, you could have had like weird things happen. You could have had him walking by and see them put like a going out of business you know, plaque on the door that he knew he sold soda, you know, like things that he knew he affected him, you know, artisanal sodas. (laughs) Exactly. But so I think that that was the part that Karen played was this entire feeling of like, there are repercussions for what you did. And I think that's, of course, where we're leading with old Candace, right? Well, I want to hit Paco real quick. Let's let's hit Paco. Let's hit Paco, Ron and Claudia. What do you do you think about Claudia, Paul? There wasn't much Claudia, right? She was single mom. Uh, she was a drug addict. Drug that was addict. The more important portion. She let her desire to try to have Ron around override more common sense kinds of things. Let's like, be clear on that. Now, in the hospital room, what did Claudia say to Joe about why she stayed with Ron? I don't know. What did she say? That Ron said bad things would happen to Paco if she didn't stay with him. So Hmm. she was being essentially blackmailed into staying with him. She felt she was staying with Ron to protect Paco. And it was Paco that went without basically the whole time Ron was around, right? Yeah, it's the classic, well... You don't have to hit a child to hurt them, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of situation. Yes. Um, what I want to talk about with Paco was the relationship that he had with Joe, and especially the books that he received. Let's talk about that. So I've never read lots of these books. I understand what they're about in in certain cases. So I don't quite get the connection with the Three Musketeers, but obviously Frankenstein. When they showed us Frankenstein, was I think. Maybe the first time they showed us Mr. Mooney in a flashback, somewhere right around that, there. That seems right, yeah. So that introduces the nature-nurture theme 
um, that prevails in Frankenstein that it immediately asks like, what is Joe? Is he a Nate? Is he a product of, of this, this, how he was nurtured? I think yes. And the other book that stands out to me, um, even, even though they mentioned the Count of Monte Cristo, um, I think the one that stands out to me next most is Don Quixote. The idea of this, this guy who has a sense of how things should be. So even though he's kind of crazy for thinking them and the things that he sees in front of him aren't the way they are, he still acts in this way that he thinks he should act with the chivalry and the knightly behavior and all that kind of stuff, even trying to take down things that aren't there. So that seems very Jewish. To oh, absolutely. Me. Um, I thought that the three musketeers and he even says it like the all for one, one for all. I thought that that was to solidify the brotherhood that was the abused children, hmm. you know, looking out for each other kind of thing that yeah, that good. that ultimately Paco plays out at the end. The all for one and one for all at the end. I mean, if it, if he had acted differently, the ending would have been completely different. And so it's like how many times Joe protected him and then, you know, ultimately his act of misguided protectiveness of Joe, you know, created the situation. Now, let's talk about Paco in that final moment. Do you think he was justified? Do you think that when she was crying out and saying he's killed people, of course, the only person that Paco knows is Ron. And of course, the key is that Joe has said to him, so long as no one finds out, we're all fine. You know, just don't say anything to anybody and everything's fine. You know, well, I think the situation was scary for him because he was a small boy. There was this woman who the last thing that you knew about her was that her coming back is what made Karen go away. Yes. You know what I mean? I do. So. So was he was any of that? being vengeful towards her or was it a protectiveness of joe or is it like the well i guess you'll get what's coming to you i think it was just more like i never thought about it in terms of a revenge for karen not exactly revenge it's it's more like inactivity in 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 the sense of joe's my my guy so i'll just kind of trust that he knows what he's doing in this situation and i'm not going to intervene in this okay because i don't know that i i trust him and I don't know that I trust you, Karen Destroyer. So <laughs> fair. And being scared of the whole thing, like this crazed woman banging on the on the door and who she is to you and all that. I think that all adds up to a credible like this kid being not sure what the right thing to do is. I have a really like logistical question. Why in the hell would there have been in like a cage door like that? I can understand everything they explained about why there was a cage downstairs with the glass, why there was all the different parts to this about the saving of the books and stuff, even why there was a locked door to go down there to, to protect it. Why would there have been like a screen cage door? Fine question. I mean, um, is that remotely realistic? Because to break into the place, you'd have to break in the cages that that New York shop owners use to keep people out at night. So right. you have that. And then you have the regular locked door. Right. And then you have... And there was, there was like a little bit of uh, just a couple steps of a hallway. Then and you have then... the cage door. And then where your expensive shit is, you have another locked door. Right. So even if you took out the cage door, you'd still have a lot of... I just didn't think the, the installation or whatever of that part. I mean, it was very important to have that there, but it was like, really? And then also, I got to say to that end, and I know it wouldn't have mattered, 
because of how Joe actually got out of the cage. Y'all, anyone who is in a thriller type situation, do not leave the keys in the lock. Do not leave the keys in the lock. I know that's not how Joe got out. I know he said he get, he left himself a spare key in the cage and that's how he would always get out. Although that's awfully puzzling because then what did he do? Put himself back in when Mooney would come and then let Mooney let him out? Something weird like that? I don't know. But you could actually see that being the way that his mind works. Talk to me. Well, I mean. Like he'd let himself out. He'd go around, do stuff, go to the bathroom, get food, whatever, and then lock himself back in. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes complete sense. I get that. But what I'm saying is like. The rest of the key ring was dangling out of the door. I mean, no doubt the cage door key was on that ring. You know, not to say that she would know there was additional doors necessarily, but always take the keys out of the door. <laughs> Just always take them. I'm not, uh, you know, she may not have been able to fumble and get it, but she had like a paragraph conversation with Paco before, you know, Joe got up there. This is interesting. I've been, I've been, I've been, uh, kind of related to the bookstore. I'm sitting here with a browser open while we're talking so I can remind myself of different interesting parts to, uh, to the to the story. And did you notice how many times Stephen King came up in the context of the bookstore? They mention it when he's, he's trying to assess what he thinks Beck is going to read first. And then later on, there's like a book opening for Stephen King's book that came out last year. And, and that's how that's kind of a big deal because that's it's Stephen King that keeps little stores like them and open because it sells so many books. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the short Amazon bio for Caroline Kepnes, and the second sentence is Stephen King calls her writing hypnotic. Never read anything like it. So when your highest praise <laughs> comes from Stephen King, and then they then they give Stephen King some props back in the show, I think that's kind of kind of nice. It's like a little winky voo, right? I like that. I like that. Yeah. So when this this show was first pitched to me by a friend at work, she said, you won't recognize anybody in the show except for some reason, John Stamos is in it. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And then I felt the same way when I recognized him. Finally, I'm like, and for some reason, John Stamos is in it. Do you want to know that my first thought when I saw John Stamos? Hmm. That, oh, they didn't do his hair. He did look like they They'd left it like kind of like disheveled, like like just kind of like barely done. I mean, it was brushed, but it wasn't there was no product and stuff in the same way that you're used to seeing him. And who wears a like, vest every day? Well, that was very Uncle Jesse, actually. The like kind of silk button down shirt with a vest and like necklaces. Dude, that was very Uncle Jesse. Beard looked like a prosthetic, though. <laughs> it probably was. But I just thought it was funny that that was like my first thought, because that's what I associate him with is that Elvis hair, you know, and the fact that it sure. was like dry. I was like, whoa, look, they didn't brush his hair. Oh, look at that. That was first thought. Stamos wig. Dr. Nikki. Dr. Nikki. What did you think? Did Dr. Nikki know anything of what was going on? Did he ever guess that? Paul and Ronaldo and Brad was really Beck and clearly not that whole thing. What no. do you think? Not at all. No, no, because he might he would have for his own safety extricated himself. I, I, I don't know. I think I think he would have somehow offered different advice or, or, or something instead of 
offering what he thought to be honest advice about. So what do you think about the fact that he essentially gave them both the mouse in the house story? Does that just go to like, was he giving every client the mouse in the house story? Yeah, maybe it applies to everybody. Everybody's either the mouse or the not the mouse or the house or the whatever. Karen's the house. You're the mouse. Yeah, he's just got one trick and he just he waits to explain enough of your story. And he's like, you know what? This reminds me of the mouse in the house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, all right. So does it actually very telling of Nikki that he just, he is a, like such a one trick? Actually, when it was revealed that she had been sleeping with Nikki, it... Did that surprise you or not surprise you? It kind of pissed me off a little bit, actually. Just that maybe disappointed in Beck. It made me a little disappointed in the, in the story, just that she'd gone back to, to just the way that she... I don't know. It, it felt cheap. The, just it felt cheap that he was that he was right. I think it would have been more interesting if he'd been paranoid about her sleeping with Doctor Nikki and been wrong. And and you're right. Disappointing. Like really, really. You like anybody who pays you any mind? Which that was a comment in there. It was like anybody who gives them two look and their legs are just wide open. Wasn't that Benji's line? Yeah. I mean, back. Dude, I would have one thing that I enjoy seeing in TV series, especially is when our our POV character doesn't exactly, you know, hit home runs all the time. And Joe, although he got hurt and all these other little minor trifles, by and large, he 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 did well with his intuition and the things that he he knew to be true and he may have implemented twisted plans to to get them more true than they were before he started but he was right a lot in a way i think it would have been more interesting to see him misfire i agree i think that the dr nikki plotline was i mean obviously that's how we get to being angry enough to do what he did with Beck, obviously. And I think also the realization of everything with Nikki and that he chose not to kill Nikki. And instead, the final line with the Nikki interaction was, um, really, this is between me and Beck. And he basically took it straight to her then. I mean, I think that that was a huge switch, you know, as opposed to killing Benji, killing Peach, you know, all these things. It was like, hang on a second, you know. Uh, this is really about me and Beck and the things that she did. And again, like I, I go back to like the unlikability for me about Beck. Now I'm a girl and I'm I'm not I don't I'm not falling in love with Beck visually. So I mean, am I missing a mark in that? Is she attractive in a way that you would overlook a lot of this cheating and whatever else she's doing? Hmm. Am I missing not, that I mean- mark? If I'm just objectively appraising her like, I don't know, cattle or something, it's interesting how he describes her when she first comes in, like something like a student body or something like that. That kind of kind of fits. I mean, she doesn't have quite the same um, model type build as, say, Peach or something. You know what I mean? Like, I would say Peach is probably the best looking woman in the whole whole thing. For sure. By kind of a lot. She's got more of a hometown girl cuteness i guess about her you know what i mean okay like she might be a big deal back in lexington kentucky or something but (laughs) this is this is new york city and so you've got well she certainly doesn't have the finish that like say peach does i mean peaches you know peach is going to be beautiful all the way down to her well i could say something nasty but um you know (laughs) nasty business (laughs) she's just she's going to be quaffed 
everywhere. You know, if anyone's going to be vajazzled, she certainly would be. Okay, so I, the point of that discussion is just, is there some sort of overwhelming physical beauty? Or is there something that I'm missing? Is there a draw that, that you see? Like, because I know a lot of women are having a hard time with Joe because there's something that's physically, like he's kind of the bad boy. He's kind of this, like got this dangerous side to him and and everything. But yet, you know, the dotingness and all that stuff, he's got all those weird characters characteristics and i think that's what makes him so like love to hate him hate to love him you know kind of feel about it but is there something about beck that i'm missing something something more intriguing something more layered that i haven't understood i mean since we got to see so much of joe's pov i think the the part about her that made him keep coming back even though she would have sex with lots of other people besides him and seemed to make it clear that she was not quite devoted to him on the same level that, she, that he was to her, was the his perception that she needed to be taken care of. And somehow he fell into this idea that he wanted to take care of her. Now, why he still wanted to take care of her, um, that's probably just his obsessive personality like obsessives don't necessarily behave rationally when it comes to their thing that they're obsessed about okay so even though yes he kept he knew he was in a better relationship and something with a person that that was a better person with karen yeah i mean um, who was actually there to help claudia and help paco and like was a legit better person and he had but he had to keep telling himself that that she, she's better for me she's a better everything everything's better with with karen um that was kind of the self-talk an obsessive might have to have because there's that other bit that comes in at a lower level that is just more like yeah but have you looked at beck's shit yet today you know like <laughs> oh yeah oh completely you know Completely. And I, I think, I mean, I guess that's where some of the like just enjoying the drama of some of it, you know, really was for him. Let's, you know, speaking of that little layer of drama that was like really tiny, but it was it's worth a worth a moment. Um, everything with the captain and having this like stepmom and these step siblings and um, the fact that he wasn't dead yet. That was like a big part of her persona now was that she had this dead addict father. What do you think about that layer in the story? I wish that we had gotten more of that kind of depth and insight into Beck like we did in that episode because that gave us the whole, since I relate everything to Star Wars, it gave us the whole your father's dead from a certain point of view kind of thing. You know what I mean? I like that. Like, well, you know, the person that was your father is dead and the person that he is now isn't the same guy, so he might as well be dead, even though physically his body's still walking around. And so, um, you know, when Obi-Wan Kenobi gives that description, you realize there's a lot more to Obi-Wan going on than, than he let on. You know, if he can make up these kinds of things and be like, yeah, that's the truth. That's the God honest truth. He's dead. Nope, he's actually alive, but he, the man I knew was dead. So same kind of deal with her. And if we had gotten more of that kind of thinking and insight into the how she saw the world, I think we might have gotten more out of Beck. You know what I mean? Um, but we we didn't. We just got that one little bit that that for what it was, it made me feel more um, 
interested in her and more more pathos for her character where i have met people in my life that have been kind of shafted when one of their parents decides to start a family over again with somebody else the the family that they were a part of that they grew up in is just sort of invalidated like the because that other person just sort of tried to erase it from the books you know what I mean? Yeah. And I've seen the kind of fallout and the kind of bitterness and the kind of like, well, I'm not going to think about you anymore as because you did this to me kind of brave face that they need to put on, even though it tears them up to, to have to endure the, the presence of the this person on, on planet Earth. That whole captain scenario was the part when I under, kind of understood Beck and wanted to know more about Beck the most. So for me, I liked it because it brought in the awesome twists of you said that Joe didn't get it wrong very often and yet he was dead wrong. Mm -hmm. He assumed that the captain sending $500 over and her buying, you know, that out the corset and that it was very clear about what this was and, you know, him being like, no, 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 you don't need to go to him. And just making all these assumptions about who he was, what was going on. I thought that that was played out really well. And especially the idea that, you know, as great as the internet is and as great as there can be all this like looking into things and I use great like in quotes I suppose you can you can dig up all the wrong evidence you can be so wrong and and get to the same point um get to a conclusion that's just dead wrong you know right and I mean if if you didn't get that also from the Nikki story obviously that was written by Beck I mean same deal you know like you can take the same evidence and just spin it a little bit differently. And that that concept got brought up where she says, you know, I'm trying to find evidence. And he was like, evidence, you know, and he kind of smiles or whatever, because because evidence is all like still has to be interpreted in some way. The evidence is only good within the context of like who it's sitting next to, you know, and how it's played out, even though evidence seems like it should be like black and white. It's not, you know, finding finding the box in the bathroom at Joe's house versus finding the box of evidence at Nikki's farm. I mean, black and white difference there, right? Right. So the other part that brought forth the captain's story sort of allowed us to see was the the I thought the stepsister part was so small and so interesting. But in about 10 sentences, this kid had in this awful snotty underhanded bullshit way was like oh i shouldn't i you know i'm not supposed to tell you this but she's pregnant you know like just just the way that she played back like a fiddle knowing how pissed she would be about small things like that and same with the stepmom you know the like your father's doing so well and p.s that was totally francie from gilmore girls you know just all those little moments and again how people pull each other's strings and how manipulative people are with one another across the board, you know, from her father sending $500 so she could buy the costume to the stepsister saying these snide comments, the stepmother being like, your father's just doing so great without, like you said, your previous family existing. Yeah. Um, you know, just every part of it, I thought just showed that it's not, it's not just Joe that does all this manipulating. And in fact, it's not even on these levels of like Peach and Joe and all these people. I mean, this was a little kid, you know, and they bothered to show that how Paco was a little kid and the stepsister was a little kid, you know, women, men, children, they're all manipulating people for their own ends 
fascinating, really fascinating. As somebody who my degree is in child development, I find the concepts of how we survive our own lives and how we actually have to essentially use people in different ways. And it's not, I'm not saying use it in a negative way. I'm saying it in like a many situations, especially for children, uh, adults are a means to an end, you know, like you need food. So you behave or you need, you know, like there's a lot of things that people do. And I just found it fascinating. The whole captain story was like all these little moments, you know, that was the episode that I thought the the show was going to start going in a, in a, in a different direction. That's also what reminded me of Gone Girl. Like if you read the book and watch the movie, you get, you get everything from the guy's perspective first, right? And then it flips and then you then get that from Amy's perspective and it starts to fill in these weird blanks that aren't really consistent with the way that you were getting the story from the, from the male narrator. And I thought, okay, now this show's gotten to, gotten to go some next level stuff for me. All right, let's propel it that way. And then it just, it just didn't. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about the girl who, who is going to bring next level stuff. Let's talk about Candace. Candace was this woven plot line throughout the entire story of, you know, what the frig was really up with Candace. Was Joe a normal person with Candace in any form or fashion? And then she and her, uh, you know, cheating ways and whatnot, is she what drove him to become so much more insane? That flashback where we saw Joe helping her with the drums out of the van, it was like we had gotten to see, to me, when I saw that, I thought we got to see that scene as it played out at the moment he started acting normal, right? But we know, having been in Joe's head, that his head does a lot of like crazy self-talk and and setting setting the stage up so that, so that it works out how he wants it to work out. That, yeah, if you pick it up at that point, everything does play out like it would in a normal situation. But if you got to rewind it even 10 seconds, you might see that he's like, and she's getting out of the van in five, four, mm -hmm. three, you know, like that sort of like orchestration, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I was very skeptical that that scene actually went that way in real life because uh, I don't think... I don't think Candace messed him up. I think he got to Candace already messed up. How painstaking he took that Wuthering Heights uh, dedication page out and rewove the binding back on and just how like exacting that process was to me was like very Hannibal Lecter-y. You know, very just so composed and yet so insane. Isn't it interesting that he seems to relay, I guess, his love for other people through books, right? So he he gets the book and he and uh, he knows that Wuthering Heights got to be her favorite book, or she wouldn't have named her band after Heathcliff. And so he gets her the book and writes in it, and then but when he wants to wash her out of his his existence he re um, binds the book and puts it in the dollar bin at the bookstore to be like you know now it's done nope. he loves paco so he keeps feeding him books right mm -hmm. and then as you pointed out he gets back published so even though he had to kill her he still loved her for 
in the way that he knows how to. It was yeah, it was his act of love to to actually have her be published. Right. Live on in book form. Yeah. <laughs> Which it, like you're saying, it was like a way to to kill Candace off in book form. Yeah, right. You know, like burning that page and everything. Did you expect that he was going to kill Elijah? Did you expect that Candace oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you Dude. don't get to be on a on a on the rooftop with Joe after you just boned Candace. Can I just say that God dog, what was up with Elijah's need to be like he's ne she's never mentioned you? Blah blah. Like I mean, I read the room, Elijah. Just zip it. Like, right. This I mean, guy his, just approached you. His eyes alone. were full of tears. Right. I mean, what the fuck? Why would you? What? 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 Yeah. Bad, bad thinking, Elijah. Like, okay, did you think Candace was dead the entire show? 100%. Okay, so then when he twist and said, look, she did change her name. Here's all the pictures. Did you still think she was dead? Yeah, because I'd seen him manipulate computery stuff all along the way. Okay, so then her showing up at the end. What did you think? I think she's got to be alive. But then again, he's been, his mind has been fooling him kind of like for the last half of the show in showing us instances of Candace as memories. Every one of those memories though, I, I expect to have been warped in some way. You know what I mean? Okay. I don't know that they were all the way that they were in as they lived them. Um. So seeing her in the flesh. Did, so, I mean, of course you feel that that was really her and I you do. really saw her in the flesh. This was all. Because I think other people reacted to her, right? Like didn't. Ethan maybe see her or something. I don't maybe. I, maybe. I'm, I'm assuming she's real and that I, we really I, saw her. Yes. Well, that's, this is the exact sort of thing as, as I pointed out when we finished the show that Berlanti would do to, to make you want to watch Arrow season two, right? Is, is, you know, someone's got to show up from your past that you thought was dead and that drives you into the story for the next season. So yes, that fits very well with, with how they do this. So will you watch season two? There's gotta be something to keep it fresh because the Joe only per perspective is going to be a challenge to keep fresh again. Do you think that the fact that Candace actually surprised him means that we have some potential to actually go into her POV and maybe replay out? Are we are we going to replay out some things that happened before? Or are we, is this going to be all new info? I think it'll be both, man, because it would be so great to see some of Candace because there's a, I mean, it would be interesting if Candace was just like a girl Joe. You well, know what I mean? Well, that's what I'm kind of wondering. I'm kind of wondering, given the cheating and given the way that she was able to do so many things, was she a girl Joe? Is she a girl Joe? If that's true, it'd be, that'd be the best way to go into season two, I think would be. Watch like, the player get played. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you fell you got attached to this monster, this likable monster in season one. What uh, what about when he meets his match? I want him to meet his match. I think that that would be exhilarating, really, because uh, you know, all in all, that's what we've basically said about Beck was that she was she was outplayed the whole time. You know, she was oh, outwit, yeah. outplayed, out whatever. What a survivor outlived, out, outlived <laughs> certainly uh, by by Joe. And so to to have somebody who is as diabolical would be pretty rad, right? Yeah, that is what would get me watching is he really had been his match and she really is able to get into his head and get into all of his life the way that 
Joe did to everyone else? And what does that mean? You know, does that allow somebody else to pop up for Candace that plays into season three that then she gets outplayed by? You know, is this just like a game of sort of cat and mouse and you keep changing positions? Oh, that would be interesting if season two had no Joe, Joe point of view. But we saw Joe as he related to Candace's perspective. Do you think they can do that? Can they play that out? If they're good. Do you think that do you think the audience will put up with that? Not for all these people who have truly fallen in love with Joe. Are they really going to be able to, mm, to probably not. abandon him? Probably not. It's a, it would be a real freaking gamble. It to, would be because he's so beloved in a weird way. Because he's got that weird mixture of some of the stuff he says is actually funny in his in his head, you know, even because it conflicts with what you're seeing as being good and right. And then he's got this thing in his head. It's like you need to you need to seriously learn how to lock your doors, you know, after, <laughs> after he lets himself in. Right, you, you right, know? right. Because he seems sincere about it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So kind of just bullet list. What did you like? What did you not like in like terms of the entire series? I really liked the commentary on the public nature of our private worlds. I thought that that was dead on. I think that it freaked me out in terms of my privacy settings and what people could really know about me, how easily you could get into people's stuff. I have recently gone through like a an epiphany about privacy and feeling very much like I want people out of my stuff. And so that really made me extra like, oh my God, if I ever lose my phone, I'm going to lose, lose my mind. Um, and also I think that the entire perspective of like how people on every level, subconscious or not, manipulate one another and create their own realities in what they're doing. I thought that that was all fascinating, dead on to human behavior. I thought that that was all really, really interesting stuff. Things that I didn't like, I did feel like it got pretty soap opera-y um, at a certain point when we started really getting into like Lynn and Annika and I could understand where the Riverdale and the some of those callback shows for me uh, was like, yeah, okay, I kind of get that. I kind of, I see this like kind of the, the, the drama of it, if you will, in a soap opera kind of way. Um, I didn't hate it, but it, but it was sort of got a little draggy for me in those mm -hmm. parts. And I'm with you that I would have appreciated more little moments where Joe got his ass handed to him in just like misjudging somebody because again like the evidence can go to a certain point and then you you really you could have just really come to the wrong conclusion all the whole time more captain moments more captain moments I think for me would have been great like like you said I wish Nikki had not turned out to be actually sleeping with Beck like that really sucked for me yeah because then the whole framing Nikki at the end would have been um oh god how much more really more diabolical wicked, yeah. yeah but like in a way he deserved it right yeah so yeah it mm. So yeah, so give me your likes and dislikes. Uh, well, you like much more deep things than me. I liked the storytelling in the, except for, uh, I wish they would have either, like I mentioned earlier, I wish they would have either given us equal time with Beck's mind or given us only Joe's mind. But given that it was like 99% Joe's mind, that's close enough for me to say that it's all Joe all the time. And that uh, no one else has done that, at least not as well, in terms of blending the inner dialogue with what he says and then having it be 
completely different kinds of things. It could have gotten really boring to listen to him just talk about the minutiae. And when you think about some of the stuff that he was telling you about, the 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 bangle bracelets, the you know, the the way she wore her hair, the smell. I mean, there's things that could have gotten gaggy boring. Sure. You know, and the fact that it completely kept your attention. Uh, him running in the park after Peach and talking about how runner's high is a lie. and all, I mean, there's parts that you'd be like, come on already, you know, really. But it kept you going, kept you interested. I thought the uh, acting was all was all right on there. Um, the lead, Penn, uh, he had he had to act in a way that didn't make it look like he was making soap opera faces while he waited for his inner dialogue to finish talking. Ah, yes, I do know what you mean. And so he had to he managed to do it pretty well. And, and and especially when he was fantasizing about Candace, then he had to then go back and forth and talk kind of like Gollum, you know, about what he's seeing, what he's experiencing. He's got this, this uh, concussion and he's talking to it, you know, because yeah. it was very rare that we saw him talk to himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just in those instance, instances in the Salinger house, I think, and and a little bit after that. But for being a crazy person, he didn't have a lot of that that kind of classic crazy person outburst. But then occasionally he did where his his handsome face was twisted into like this like screwball eyed like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of kind of thing. You know, ah, I really like that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's kind of who he was, right? Yeah. Very yeah. much so. You know, I to, to add to your point, and I, I don't mean to steal your point, but I really did like that layer of books and the way that the stories within the books could give you a little bit of insight into what's going on with the characters now. And I always love that. I love it when they did it in Lost or when they do it with music and other shows. I really feel like that always adds to those of us who like to really, really, really delve into shows and um, pay a lot of attention. It gives us so much more meat to really digest there instead of just the, the shallow nature of so many shows. Exactly. Uh, you touched on it earlier that certain story points resolved very unrealistically, specifically Peach's suicide attempt being followed like the next day with jogging through the park and then getting clobbered hard enough by a rock on the side of your head to knock you out. Now, I'm not uh, any kind of big city doctor. No, but you play one on a podcast? Yeah, and I think that if you get hit that hard on the side of your head, you're going to have swelling that is going to be kind of an issue, you know, so that you're not making plans with the girl that you hope likes you to go away to your secret cubbyhole um, the next day like Peach did. There's probably some time compression here, but it sure seemed like the next day, didn't it? Yeah, I felt like it was really fast. And like they, he was bringing the balloon, which implied it had just happened. Yeah. And she had no visible signs of any kind of trauma to her head or face or anything. Right. I thought that that was weird. And it was uh, funny enough. It's like the same thing that they did with the with the car. He crashes that car. But since this isn't like a big budget show where they can go around trashing classic cars, there's not a scratch on that car. They just like laid some leaves on the hood. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah. And you you had an idea about that. It's, it's like the same idea. Well, you know, the owner probably was like, you can't, you can't 
screwing off my car. Um, but it's the same thing that they did with Peach. There's not a scratch on Peach after they after they lay her down in a pool of blood. You know, as like I'm saying, Peach is the car. Um, what else was I not so fond of? Okay, there was also the false sense of extension. Like Caroline mentioned, it got soap opera y. Um, like there were a couple times when it felt like, okay, we've resolved this problem, so then we fall into the pit of another problem. And I felt like some of those cycles, especially when the problems were still kind of small, um, like say, you know, Annika's social media problems or whatever. Um, it felt like those particular cycles were just extending things or even the Karen relationship, as Caroline pointed out, had a good reason for being there in that it showed Joe the consequences of his actions by kicking Karen out of his life. She left entirely, which meant that Ron moves back in, right? But at that point in the story, for me, it felt like Karen pushed on the story a few episodes that that it didn't really go. You know what I mean? It didn't have the gas for. So I think this could have been better as a six or eight episode season rather than 10. You know what I mean? And I think Karen was part of that. Uh, yeah, but I I really feel like you had to have the Karen part happen so that Paco gets hurt. Because she just freaking appears and decides she's going to have sex with Joe and then start a relationship. It was just like, well, she she freaking appears because Claudia and then, you know, the 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 speed in which she suddenly gets with Joe does seem a little bit odd. But um, but you know what? It speaks to that same thirstiness that was sort of discussed about with Benji about just like anybody who shows you any mind like as soon as Joe shows any amount of compassion for Claudia and Paco then Karen's all over him and it's like god world is that the way this all works maybe I don't know but so what do you think Caroline would you recommend you to other viewers I absolutely would recommend it I think that it's an awesome binge I think that it's the type of thing that you can sink your teeth into and then also a little bit it's kind of important to me that Sometimes you kind of have to let your mind wander a little bit in this one because otherwise it could get awfully heavy. You could get really like start getting paranoid looking over your shoulder and worrying about where your phone is all the time and all that. So, you, so it's funny because it's meaty, but you, you, I'm going to give it the little extra caveat to say like, don't watch too hard or you could have some serious nightmares. I would also recommend it. It it plays out a lot like thriller novels are written, you know, so every chapter has a reason to go to the next chapter. Basically, it's not like standalone like this happens. It's more like this happens, but this other thing makes you want to go to the next chapter. So that's the way this plays out. And it does it pretty well and does it in a unique fashion that you don't really get elsewhere on TV with the inner dialogue and all that kind of stuff. So and you get the mixture of this character that you're not supposed to like that you end up kind of liking despite your own best judgment. So for all those kinds of reasons, I, I could recommend just about anybody. Um, it's a good thriller, unique way of telling it. Absolutely. Way to go, Lifetime slash Netflix for bringing us an excellent new show. Listen to our other podcast episodes where we review things like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is us, Westworld, Stranger Things. And look forward to future episodes where we'll 
where we will be reviewing other Netflix and streaming shows just like we did in this episode. Thanks so much. Thanks. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com, that's D-A-L-E-Y review.com, Facebook or Twitter, or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.